Welcome to the future. Get ready to explore how spirituality and science will come together in the age of Aquarius. Hosted by JC Nova. Today on the show, I'm talking with Gerd Leonhard, CEO of the Futures Agency and one of the leading futurists worldwide. He's the author of five books, including Technology versus Humanity, and is a film producer. It's a fascinating conversation on what direction our society is headed and how the next 10 years will decide what our future will look like for the years to come. Enjoy the show. Welcome to the future. This is Age of Aquarius, and I'm JC Nova. I'm here today with futurist Gerd Leonhard. Welcome to the show. Yes, thanks for having me. So tell me, what is a futurist? <laughs> That's a very good question. You know, I didn't know what a futurist was until I became one. I always say jokingly, because basically in the U.S. and sort of Anglo countries around the world, thinking about the future is kind of many ways normal. But in Europe, it used to be kind of a strange thing, like Nostradamus kind of thing, you know. And a lot of people get confused when they think about futurism as prediction. And my work doesn't deal with prediction. My work is about foresights. And foresights are really a hunch, right? Intuition, imagination is what everybody has. But my job is to do what most people don't have time for, which is to spend 90% of their time a little bit further away from today. So five to 10 years. And there were sort of uh, really well-known futurists like Alvin Toffler, Arthur C. Clarke, Buckminster Fuller, you know, really famous people who were 50 years ahead of our time, like the, the guy who wrote Blade Runner, the film script, I think his name was Katie Dick. He basically was 50 years ahead. But most of my work is five to 10 years. And I, I try to help companies to figure out, and of course governments also, what is the right thing to do to build a good future? That's kind of a main topic and to basically develop a little bit of foresight without always running after issues, but to essentially have more prediction, possibilities, understanding, uh, to go beyond the sort of today, everyday stuff. Can you tell me more about the Futures Agency? Yeah, we're, we're essentially a, a collection of people who are doing similar work. The Futures Agency is, like it says, an agency for the future. So we have collected about 60 people around the world and you know, that has greatly changed, of course, since COVID because we can't travel anymore as much as we used to, but now it's all virtual. And so I have colleagues who are futurists in, let's say, retail or futurists in energy or they are specialists. And my work is more general. So I do society, technology, humanity, business, technology. And then we have other ones who only do one thing, like nuclear energy or you know, defense or whatever. right? And we basically get together to help clients together, depending on what kind of domain expertise they need. I was watching some of your videos, and in one of your videos, you talk about the human renaissance. Can you share some more information on what you think that is? Yeah, it's been a big topic in my work for quite some time. The book I wrote in 2016, five years, yeah, came out in 16, was called Technology versus Humanity. And it brought up the whole debate about how much technology is good for humans and how we can use technology to stay human. And in the last five years, many topics in the book, like digital ethics, the ethics of technology, 
regulation, social media, and so that's become all big topics. You know, so I was a little bit ahead of things there as well. But the renaissance is a term that I'd like to use for saying that, especially because of the COVID crisis now, we are putting the emphasis on people again and not so much on buying more software. And this has been the, the digital transformation craziness in the last 10 years. Every company, every government thought more digital is better, right? And more tech is better. And it turns out that's not really true because really technology is just a tool. You know, we can use it badly and then it's no good. And essentially we're creating a scenario where too much technology can actually be a very bad thing also. So the renaissance to me is, is a term for saying we're going to realign against this concept of creating a better world, a better future that's good for humans and the planet, of course, right? Rather than just good for, you know, uh, economic progress. Do you think we're at a crossroads, like over the next 10 years, on, on what the future may be for all of us? Well, totally. I mean, we, we are in a place to where we're the fork in the road, as Buckminster Fuller like to say, 60 years ago. It's essentially we're going down this road and we have to make important decisions every two meters. You know, It's like, what do we do about the pandemic? What do we do about climate change? What do we do about intelligent machines? What do we do about genetic engineering and biotechnology and bioengineering, right? So we're truly at the point to where also technology can do pretty much anything. In 10 years, we'll probably be at that place to where we can have sustainable energy pretty much anywhere on the planet. And then, and then we have big decisions to make. You know, what do we do with technology that may be changing our lives and how far do we take it? For example, uploading our brain to the internet, the singularity. And yeah, so we're, we're definitely at a crucial point. Again, the Renaissance was at the same point in the 15th century to where it was like a sort of make it or break it moment. And, and that's the next decade. So obviously you hear in the news about artificial intelligence, the metaverse, and I think a lot of people sometimes get concerned about the future or obviously worried, but you did this wonderful film, short film called The Good Future. Can you tell me what inspired you to do the film and, and talk about the film a little bit more? Yes, well, you know, I, I got inspired to do a film like this. This has been my fifth film, actually. I made a few other ones before. Because I, I, I talk to a lot of people, and I do a lot of traveling uh, before COVID, and now virtually traveling. A lot of people told me that they don't feel good about the future anymore. And of course, that's kind of hard to, you know, ignore that we have a pandemic on that matter. But generally, people are saying, okay, there is all the bad things happening in China. Then we can't get our stuff together to work on global problems. We can't get the vaccines out to people. We have climate change issues where, you know, basically everything is going bad, right? I'm always thinking like when I look at the world around me, yes, there are bad things, of course, and things don't work, but other things are amazing. Like we got a vaccine after 12 months, right? I mean, that that is not 12 years. Now we can't decide how we're going to pay to roll it out. That's a different question, right? And of course, all the consequences and stuff. But basically, the future is better than we think all around. Despite all of the issues of that we can't agree and that we have economic, geopolitical struggles, like, I mean, look how, how quickly America is shifting from the previous period to where basically everything was going backwards. Now it's going forward in, in like hyperdrive. And Germany you know, shifting to a green economy basically in, in a month. And that's why I made the film uh, is to say that the good future is entirely possible. 
we have all the tools, we have the money, we can, we can make it happen, we have to make the right decisions. That's really what it comes down to. How are we creating the future every single day? I live in Los Angeles, you live in Switzerland, and different countries have different governments, but how can we work together as global citizens to make a difference every single day? Well, there's many things that we can do as citizens and private individuals, and then there's other things that we have to make the state do, right? So that that we yeah, can have more vote impact. Vote the right people uh, in. Yeah, for example, social media is one of those things. You know, if you hate what Facebook and other social media companies are doing to the democratic discussion and to manipulating people's opinions, that's primarily a Facebook problem, I believe. Right? Then, then maybe you should stop using it. That and I stopped using it. It was hard. That's kind of like stop using a highway. You know, it's like driving a slow lane or something. Riding your bike. Yeah, it hurt me in, t- in terms of traffic it, uh, to my website. It hurt me, right? Seventy percent less traffic, but I, I just couldn't do it anymore. I just felt like I wouldn't want to be part of it. But if we want Facebook to be accountable and to actually change, that's going to take government regulation. And the other thing is, what we can personally do is to pull our money out or put it somewhere else. Like I started going down this decarbonization principle of saying anything that evolves around oil and gas, like investments or having a car for that matter, which is not needed here in Switzerland, <laughs> it's not Los Angeles, right? I'm going to do without it. I'm going to try to decarbonize myself. I'm going to make a difference. And then I have to make compromises. And so these are the kind of things that we can do. And then, of course, in my work, I can tell people, give them some ideas about what a better future would look like. A lot of companies need to be convinced to think beyond just profit and growth, because that's what's killing us. You know, it's, it's this kind of idea, we're making a lot of good money doing very bad things, like, <laughs> like oil companies or, you know, many social media companies, tech companies sometimes. And I think we have to stop this kind of idea of saying, well, it makes a lot of money, so it's okay. It's not. And it's actually when there's only a few companies making a lot of money doing bad things, we can kind of take it, right? But when everything is going in this direction, then it's all like system collapse, right? And so I think we can do a lot of things to create awareness and to create pressure. And now after the, the Glasgow Summit for Climate Change, the pressure on people to change and to go green is enormous. Yeah? And the more pressure we can, we can build there, the better. How can we lift others out of poverty and... In the United States, we have a real issue with homelessness, especially in Los Angeles. For the good future, what can we do to to change that? I think that, at least from a United States perspective, is pretty critical. Yeah, you know, I lived in the U.S. for 17 years, and my kids are Americans, and I have a lot of connections to the U.S. There's many amazing things about America. Economic equality and... Other sort of justice matters are not part of the great things of America, <laughs> to say the least. You know, it's basically, if, if we want to solve some of the larger problems, technology cannot solve those problems. Uh, it makes them worse, right? Like if we have polarization of politics, as we have in America, then social media makes it worse. Other media may make it better, like NPR and others, but, but that's basically amplified to this. So if we want to solve large problems, like, for example, homelessness or inequality, we have to start with how we distribute money. And we distribute money right now by basically saying, well, if if you can make it to the top, then you can stay at the top because you can figure out how to do it, right? 
but to get to the top is is next to impossible for a lot of people now. Like you can see this kind of what has happened over the last fifty years: productivity increases, so companies are making more money, doing more efficient things with technology, but wages and jobs have declined. So what happens with the profit? Well, they go into corporate distribution. Right? They go in the stock market. They go into dividends. So we have to ask companies to make a change to that so we can distribute the money. One major reason, for example, for homelessness in California is that these people are not down and out, drop out kind of people for the most part. They're actually lawyers and bankers and, and, you know, people with degrees and, you know, that were unplugged from their life support system ended up on the street can happen very quickly. So, we have to take a larger view of how we fix society. And part of that is, you know, how do we tax people? Where is the money going? And how do we create in what we call in Europe a social capitalism, right? America has very much an extreme capitalism, a corporate capitalism. That can be good for some people, but, you know, take, for example, the simple technology boom that we've had in the COVID years, the last two years. Technology has boomed, has had record earnings, right? But most of the benefits of technology go to six cities in the U.S. High salaries, high rents, highly paid people, highly paid CEOs. And everybody else can kind of, you know, take a look where they can scramble for another job, right? So that doesn't make a lot of sense. There needs to be a lot of uh, adjustments there. Do you think that'll change now that more people are working remotely? Because it's, at least from a U.S. perspective, it redistributes the wealth on a state tax level. Uh, A lot of people left Los Angeles and New York and have relocated to, say, Arizona, Texas, different, different locations. I know that from a political perspective, we have a, an election year coming up for Congress in 2022, so people talk about that a lot. And I'm just curious if you're seeing that in Europe as well, people moving or are people just staying where they're at? It's going to be 10 pretty wild years now because what is happening now is that most of the new jobs that are being built around the world really are virtual jobs, not just because of COVID, also because the family is working. So just wait until we get into virtuality and augmented classes. We can sit in Siberia and do a job in Los Angeles editing movies, you know? So the virtual working is the future. And also there's a lot of predictions saying that roughly 70% of all new jobs in 2030 don't exist today, right? Just like social media didn't exist 15 years ago, and now 20 million people work on social media. That's why we're going to need different security systems. We're going to need global taxation that has been started to be expressed by the G20. We need solutions that go beyond this kind of like everybody on their own kind of concept. And this will take a larger story to rebuild our global system so that enough money is being put back to the people that need it. And there's a lot of intricacies here. And of course, ultimately, I think working virtually will have huge benefits also for cities and and for traffic and for carbon offsetting and all these kind of things. What about digital ethics? Do you think there'll be a global standard set for digital ethics since we're moving more towards virtual reality and remote work? Well, I mean, the answer is, I mean, technology is becoming so powerful, infinitely powerful, that it's it's like if you look back five years, it's like going to kindergarten or something. You know, not, now it's like the real thing. Now it's basically in ten years, technology will be virtually unlimited, unlimited computing power, five G networks, ten G networks, right? Unlimited speed networks. 
cheap devices that don't use mining resources anymore. Uh, I'm basically 9 billion people on the internet. And if you want to upload your brain to the internet, like Elon Musk keeps saying, then you can probably do that in 10 years, right? The question is, is it good for us? Right? And, and not everything that is possible is good for us. It's like, it's, it's a sort of drug-related problem, you know? Too much of a good thing it can be a very bad thing, like eating, smoking, drinking, you know, that sort of thing. And basically, as we're moving into that future, we have to prioritize what we want rather than what we can have. So if I can live in cyberspace and not have a body, just put my head in a Petri dish, you know, is that going to be a valuable uh, future to pursue? You know, so what future do we want for our kids and for ourselves, of course, and for our grandkids? And then we have to set priorities. So this comes down to ethics and to values. For example, if we want to salvage media and actually have a good, thriving media business that's not completely controlled by algorithms, we have to invest and we have to have rules. Right? This is why we're going to have so a lot more regulation because people are realizing it makes a boatload of money. Like, for example, Facebook makes $120 million profit per day, right? but it does a boatload of damage. Yeah? It does a huge amount of damage. Basically, we have to find a way forward that still makes good money, but also creates good benefit, right? Because the objective is not just money, it's also flourishing, you know, basically human happiness, right? Human flourishing. And, and this is why we need to put the values and the, the ethics, not necessarily morals, but, you know, simple things like what is good and what is not good, you know, over potential monetary benefit. And this is the process we're in right now. Who do you think is going to control digital technology in the future? Is it going to be like the big five, Google, Facebook, Amazon, Apple? That's a conversation we have every day here. And many of us, at least I work in cybersecurity during the day. So we are always talking about how Zuckerberg is like the de facto president because he like controls so much information and how people think and feel all around the world, which is a little bit concerning. Yes, well, I think it's quite clear that uh, security, safety, and privacy and all these kind of things are becoming the number one issue. There are predictions saying roughly 80% of the military budget will be digital in 10 years, right? I mean, it's it's not hard to believe, really. So whose job is it going to be to keep us safe? Well, I don't think it can be the company that sells the products. Uh, obviously, they will have to collaborate in a public-private partnership. But, but in the end, you know, it's the government's job to keep us safe between all the interested parties. So you have business, you have science, you have technology, you have the stock market, you have investors, and then you have citizens, you know. The citizens have their own control over data to some degree, yes, but ultimately the system has to work, right? And that is the government's job to make sure. So if we're going to put our DNA, our biome, our phenotype, our, our makeup in the cloud so that we can fight cancer together, right? Somebody is going to have to be in charge of security and safety there, and it, it can't just be one of the companies using it. <laughs> that would make little sense. So it, there will have to be standards, just like we have standards for nuclear energy now, nuclear power, nuclear bombs, and like we have standards for genetic research. And we're going to need a lot more standards and a lot more supervision because technology is so powerful now. Right? That's what it comes down to, is to safeguard, you know, and to have an entity that safeguards us. I think our data is going to be safeguarded probably by a global sort of privacy agreement 
that's passed through the UN or different you know, bodies to essentially create a mechanism for this. Lots of private companies are working on that. Right? That's going to be a great business opportunity. But in the end, yeah, there has to be a sort of a, a monitoring, just like you do nuclear monitoring, you know, it can't be done to Westinghouse to monitor their own plants, you know. Right? What do you think about the metaverse? What do you think will be the benefits and the challenges as it rolls out over the next couple of years? Yeah, the metaverse is one a little bit of those misnomers like artificial intelligence. It doesn't really say very much. Yeah, the concept of working in a virtual space that actually works. I can hear the sound coming from left and right, and I don't have to use a fancy green screen. I can avatar myself in there, and I can do all the things that I do at work. All that is really a great idea. But the other thing is that when I wear virtual reality glasses or augmented reality glasses, and I get sucked into this virtual kingdom, right? then I may kind of be tempted that this is actually the place where I am, right? Uh, it's kind of like the mobile phone, which actually tempts you to fall in love with somebody on Instagram or whatever, so that we're confusing our reality, you know? see Black Mirror and so on, right? Now, I wonder about the metaverse becoming such a place that becomes so good that I can't be without it. Right? Literally, I would exist there. And that would be like video games times 500. Yeah. So that's one worry I have. The other one is like, it definitely shouldn't be the empire of one company and essentially one guy that gets to monetize things there. Of course, the plan is to expand it, but it's very unlikely to see Microsoft and Facebook collaborate on a, on a common metaverse. You know, uh, That strikes me as utopian. So I do wonder about the addiction problem and the confusion and I call it the great reduction because it takes everything that we do as humans and it boils it down to a VR experience. And I think that can be good as long as we see it as what it is, which is an other space. You know, it's not life. It's just an other space. How do you think it'll impact human relationships? Because I know with online dating and say you go to a restaurant and you might have four people sitting together at a table, but instead of talking, they're all looking at their phones. So technology has changed how we interact and communicate. In some ways we communicate more, but in other ways on our day-to-day -day relationships, they, they definitely have changed. Well, you know, technology is morally neutral until we use it, William Gibson said, I don't know, 15 years ago, science fiction author. So that's true for all technology. I can use a hammer and build a house. I can go and kill somebody. I can do that with AI. I can do that with a robot. But it's exponentially more powerful with all the stuff that we have now. Right? If we want to channel technology correctly, then we have to be able to limit it also. Because, you know, one of the things that really makes us different is that we are not machines. At least I don't believe we are machines. Some people do. But so because we're not machines and we're not computers and we're not algorithms, we like things that have nothing to do with technology, like experiences, uh, emotions, get togethers. Like, like, you know, they, they, there's a lot of research on this showing that a virtual world, if it's really good, or even a picture, can show you like three to five percent of a, like a boiled down reality, right? But then when you're actually meeting a person, it's like 100% reality, gives you so much more possibilities and input. Right? So I don't think humans will ever want to be in a world that is completely uh, disembodied and, and boiled down to you know my screen 
or so, even if the screen is here, because it is inherently lonely. I, I always say we will not find happiness in the cloud or on a screen. What we find there is a, is a degree of hedonism, or which is not bad, you know, I'm not knocking on hedonism. Like, it, it can be nice, you know, to do that, but it's different. And I think ultimately, as long as, as humans are human, we value relationships, experiences, emotions. Uh, we don't value data. Humans could care less about data. We use data, but it's not a big deal. You know, big deal is an experience with a person. <laughs> you know? So, so, and this is important to keep in mind that uh, anything that helps us to get to that point is good. But sometimes we use things to help us and they become like the purpose, right? So in many ways you can say technology has become a religion. I'm not religious, so I don't care what religion people have, but, but we should look at technology as a tool and it should stay a tool. It should not become the obsession of replacing anything that's human with fancy technology so we can be quicker. You know, this whole concept of being quicker and faster and, and smarter is ridiculous because it leads us to be robots, basically. What does a post-pandemic future look like for all of us? Or is COVID something we just have to live with moving forward? You know, I think we're going to have to live with viruses as we've always had, like with AIDS and Ebola and many others. And COVID is more dramatic and, and it was expected. We didn't pay any attention to it. We've learned the hard lesson and it's going to, this, this thing is going to be with us. And we're going to find a way to rebound despite the fact that COVID will continue. And as we're going to mobilize a lot of resources and we're going to really improve healthcare as a result, <laughs> I think, because we're going to learn about many other things. We're going to have to be prepared for pandemics and viruses and, and, and that's the learning from COVID, right? And yes, we're going to return to a life where we don't have to check our internet feed as to where we can't go and so on every two minutes, right? But this will be part of our environment. We're going to be in a situation where basically that vaccination is ongoing, probably, right? and it will become the new normal in, in so many ways. And I think one thing we have learned is that it pays off to be prepared and to recognize science <laughs> and to collaborate, right? I mean, it's the obvious, yeah. But And the other thing is that we're learning now is that nobody will be in good shape unless everybody is in good shape, right? And nobody can be happy regardless. I mean, if they have endless money, they can fly to Mars and just hang out there and get away from, like Elon is again suggesting. But generally speaking, it's quite clear it's collaborative and we must break the rules, like the rules of patents, possibly, to get that stuff out there as quickly as possible, right? And we must break rules of... CO2 taxes and all these things to tackle climate change and, and basically has boiled down to this. Yeah. And these are all like undercover opportunities, right? Because, you know, the COVID crisis is leading to trillion dollar industries creating new healthcare and medication processes also based on artificial intelligence, right? And mRNA, which is behind the vaccine, will generate dozens of new medications in other areas, right? It's a huge crisis, it's very painful, but the learning is substantial and it's kind of catapulting us into a new reality. So how do you think it'll affect capitalism in the future? You talk about how it's created 
new ways that we're doing business in healthcare and technology. I think that you mentioned earlier that there's new jobs being created every day that we don't even know about now that'll be completely different in 2030. Well, I think it's it's quite clear that capitalism as we know it is by and large unfit for the future because it, it has basically grown up with the industrial economy, right? And the industrial economy was based on oil and gas, on fossil fuel economy. And it's a destructive, uh, extractive economy, which means we take stuff out of the ground, we burn it, or we take stuff from people and we burn them. <laughs> you know, similar concept. It doesn't give back enough, right? And not to say that we had any alternatives, we didn't. You know, socialism, communism was a disaster, and that that is for sure. But maybe not so much the concepts behind it. Huh? But where we are going now is quite clear. We have to go beyond the simple obsession with GDP and jobs and growth and more money and more stocks. And, you know, that is ending because it, it doesn't replenish. Right? It doesn't give back. So it doesn't give back to people, it doesn't give back to the environment, it exploits the environment and people. And so we're now at the point where we're realizing, and everybody's real, the governments, the investors, the stock markets, that we have to think broader, you know, a lot more long term. And I think this realization has happened that we need what's called sustainable capitalism. You know, Al Gore, like, I don't know, 15 years ago, 20 years ago. And in Europe, we call it social capitalism which is essentially saying we pay for everybody to be collectively well. And that creates enough benefits as a result so that we don't have to deal with uh, criminal behavior or with with homeless on the street, or but we have high taxes, right? So this is the kind of conversation that we need to have because in the good future, as I call it, it really has to be about four things, right? People, planet, we have to rebuild the planet and make it happen again, we can. And purpose, which is finding a way to say that the purpose of my company is beyond money, right? It's one of the other things. And prosperity, uh, which is to prosper, but not necessarily all for profit, right? So uh, Elkerton talked about people trying to profit for a long time. I'm just adding the purpose to it. And I think this is where we are going now. People are realizing and governments are realizing, like in Germany, the election, right, just turned the German government into a completely different animal than just before. And before, not that before it didn't work, it did. And Merkel did a great job. But now we need something else. There's a new window and we have to tackle global opportunities and global problems. And the old system of just prioritizing money is failing us. It failed us with COVID. It is failing us with COVID. And it will fail us with climate change. And we can't afford that to happen. What does education look like in the good future? Many people have remarked that the next Google may well be an education company. Because really what education has become now, it's lifelong, on demand, partly virtual, hybrid. And people are realizing that education is not about downloading information like a bot. You know, I always say jokingly, if you work like a robot, a robot will take your job. And if you learn like a robot, you'll never have a job. Because basically, this is what I learned and what we learned at school is to, you know, memorize stuff for later. So you get an MBA, and then after you go through all the hoops and, and, and uh, all the jumps there, then you end up in a, in a job where you can use that wisdom from the MBA. Turns out the world is a different place now. We have to learn on demand. We have to constantly improve what we're learning. We'll have to learn lifelong. We have to learn and get other certificates like vocational training 
not so much just degrees and stuff, right? So many people are now working in, in places, especially virtually, where they need qualifications. And they have to get it in three weeks. Right? So, so education is going to go upside down, and it's also going away from this concept of, you know, science and, and engineering is everything. Turns out it's not. Right? Especially now because computers can do science and engineering very soon. They're already working on that, right? I mean, AI, AIs can write songs and write books and, and translate languages and do all that stuff very soon. That's going to get actually good. So do you think we need actually engineers that build bridges when the process of building a bridge can be prepped out by an AI and done in a 3D printer? So we're going to have to think about more the human jobs. And the human jobs are the ones that machines can't do. And there are thousands. Right? Human jobs include things like negotiation, understanding, creativity, imagination, intuition, uh, you know, all the things that are not zeros and ones, you know, they're not binary, they're much more complex. I call them human-only jobs. And if you're looking at your own job, you can analyze and say, okay, uh, let's say 30-40% of my job is routine, my own job, like finding things. A machine can do that sooner or later. And then I can focus on other jobs, like understanding my clients, you know. Or, or I can go hike in the mountains if I want to. But basically, the, the concept of work and education is shifting so quickly that our best bet is to say we put enough money and resources on learning how to be better humans. You know, Because that's our ultimate job, is to do what machines can't do. How can we, as global citizens, adapt and thrive in 2022 and beyond? What can we, we do to make a better life for ourselves. I mean, I, I think to thrive and to, uh, to do well in the future, first we have to start by believing that the future can be good. Uh, so it has to be hope, not in, this, in the sense of, of utopia. I call it sometimes protopia, which is the opposite of dystopia, which is negative, right? Or despondency, right? There's so much despondency right now. People are like, oh no, it will never work, right? And, and that, that is not good because there's a saying by Barbara Hubbard, who was a futurist, working with Buckminster Fuller, and she says, as you see the future, so you act, and as you act, so you become. Right? So that is the first step, is to say, I see the future as being full of possibilities. Yes, many problems, but none that I don't think we can tackle. Right? And, and, and humans have proven to be able to collaborate when the pressure is high enough, right? And after failing to do other things, we can. We have collaborated to block nuclear weapons from destroying the world. It has worked, right? You can say that it's been difficult, but it has worked, right? So first step is to think positive about the future. The second one is to spend, I would say, at least an hour a day in the future. I call this the future mindset. Okay, that means is to understand what is coming, not in the faraway future, but in the now future, you know, the future that's basically here, five to ten years, you know. So understanding technology, understanding trends and shifts, and and the best way to do that is to read, not to watch Netflix, right? <laughs> so uh, that is another kind of future. That's that's the the Netflix Hollywood Bollywood version, but um, to read the best books, right? So Bill Gates says five hours a week reading. 
stuff you don't know yet. Right? And that changes your life completely because your outlook is changing. And all of a sudden you're saying, you know, I heard about this and I think could be like this, right? You come up with ideas, you do things. Right? And that is a sort of the compound learning effect, you know. In the first year or two, you spend more time doing other things. You don't notice the change very much. But very quickly, it's like an exponential curve. And in five years, you know you're way ahead of most other people that haven't done this. Right? So the future mindset is the other one. And the third one is to question your assumptions about what you think is true. Like, you know, people say, okay, I, I always say I'm not a vegetarian, but I always say the future will be vegetarian. Because if I question my assumptions about eating, it's quite obvious that th this cannot continue. It's 28% of global pollution is livestock and eating and agriculture and farming. Right? Uh, it's one of those things where you say, of course, that's just we have to fix that. Right? And so if I question my assumption about wanting to eat real meat, yeah, so maybe I can, you know, I can try the meat from the from the lab, you know, the cultured meat or the meat substitute. I did try it actually; it tasted good. And it turns out I don't really need to do what I used to do. Right? It's 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 just an assumption. And so when we question our assumptions, it's like when you go to therapy with your husband or your wife. You have to question your assumptions, and all of a sudden you're like, oh, yeah, could be like this. And that's how you make a, a life-changing decision. And that's also in your job and for your company that you were, or in government or so. Those are like penny drop moments, and, and those are the ones that you need. So where can listeners find you if they want to watch some of your videos, read your books? What's your website, and how can people get in touch with you? Yeah, I'm pretty easy to find, uh, thanks to my uh, German name, so Gerd, G-E-R-D. There's only one more popular GERD, that's the gastrointestinal reflux disease. And that's not popular, but it's common. So I'm GERD, G-E-R-D. If you just Google for GERD and Futurist, and of course my website is futuristgerd.com, and there's lots of resources there. I have a huge YouTube channel, over a over thousand videos have been published there over the years, gerdtube.com, so it's a shortcut. Right? And my book is Technology versus Humanity, it's on Amazon, techvshuman.com. And, of course, my film, The Good Future, thegoodfuturefilm.com, pretty obvious. But you can find it pretty much anywhere for download as well. So lots of information out there. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. It's been fascinating, and I highly recommend watching the film, The Good Future. I really enjoyed it, and it definitely makes you think about how we're all part of this and we can all have a good future, which I'm sure we all want. Thank you so much, Gerd. Thank you. I'll see you down the road. You just heard the Age of Aquarius podcast with your host, JC Nova. Remember to subscribe to the show on your favorite streaming platform. Thanks for tuning in. Age of Aquarius is a cosmic media production and recorded in Los Angeles, California. A special thanks to our producers, Georgie Rutherford and Christopher Lang. To learn more about Age of Aquarius, please visit our website at ageofaquarius.fm. Thanks for listening. Yeah.